Hello and welcome to another edition of Bread Theory. Uh, tonight, uh, oh, first of all, I'm Zach, your chill companion through the world of leftist li- literature. And tonight I have a very special guest who happens to also be my wife. Uh, she goes by Perennial Green on Twitch. She does her own show, and I'll let her tell you about it right now. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Zach. Thanks. How are you? Very good. Uh, if you could please start by giving the audience your pronouns and a little bit about your biography and maybe your political journey, whatever you feel like sharing tonight. Cool. Well, I'm Amanda from Perennial Green. Um, my Twitch stream is about houseplants or like plant-related things. Sometimes there's craft activities, sometimes we're potting things, or we're taking a look over stuff in a plant hall. So that's on Thursday nights at 7.45. Feel free to join anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, Sees the, the minis. Oh, that's, I like that name. Uh, it says that these are, those are very cool plants in the background. Yeah, we, we've worked hard to build our collection. She kind of got the bug when uh, COVID started and uh, things are just kind of built on, its, <laughs> on, on itself. Uh, one plant after another till we have a... Uh, quite the collection it's a really nice thing to have around just you know brightens up our, our little space here uh but anyway tonight we are going to be diving into chapter six of peter kropotkin's the conquest of bread and this chapter is all about housing it's, it's called dwellings so there's gonna be a lot of cool uh topics that i'm sure are going to come up in the in the in the time that we go through this um if you and the audience have any questions feel free to, sh- to shout them out we'll try to get to as many as we can and uh, yeah, just if you're not familiar with the, the show, uh, I go through the audiobook, uh, I pick a new audiobook um, chapter each week, and we just go through it, listening to the book together, and I'll, I'll pause it and kind of comment on it, and uh, you know, just whatever comes up, whatever, I try to help you relate it to the current day, and um, uh, my own theories on politics and, and life and stuff like that, so... Uh, without further ado, I think we'll get going on Chapter 6 of The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin, and this one is entitled Dwellings. Let's make sure we're still hooked up, right? Oh, no. Keeps on linking from that. Here we go. Certain ideas among the workers. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and restart that because it didn't work out. The best place to start is from the beginning. Usually. This audio production Here we go. In collaboration with Audible Anarchy. Let me know how the volume is on the audiobook, too. Chapter 6. Dwellings. I think I might bump it up just a bit. Those who have closely watched the growth of certain ideas among the workers must have noticed that on one momentous question, the housing of the people, namely, a definite conclusion is being imperceptibly arrived at. It is a known fact that in the large towns of France, and in many of the smaller ones also, the workers are coming gradually to the conclusion that dwelling houses are in no sense the property of those whom the state recognizes as their owners. This idea has evolved naturally in the minds of the people, and nothing will ever convince them again that the, quote, rights of property ought to extend to houses. The house was not built by its owner. It was erected, decorated, and furnished by innumerable workers in the timber yard, the brick field, and the workshop, toiling for dear life at a minimum wage. The money spent by the owner was not the product of his own toil. It was amassed, like all other riches, by paying the workers two-thirds or only half of what was their due. 
Moreover, and it is here that the enormity of the whole proceeding becomes most glaring, the house owes its actual value to the profit which the owner can make out of it. Now this profit results from the fact that his house is built in a town possessing bridges, quays, and fine public buildings, and affording to its inhabitants a thousand comforts and conveniences unknown in villages, a town well paved, lighted with gas, in regular communication with other towns, and itself a center of industry, commerce, science, and art, a town which the work of twenty or thirty generations has gone to render habitable, healthy, and beautiful. Just going to pause it for one second there. So basically what, what Kropotkin is laying out again is this concept of all for all, that you can't distill the the product of, of any one thing even if it's uh, say a house to the the labor of one person it, it goes into generations of architects and generations of people that build the roads and then all the utilities that go up to it and uh, what he usually builds to when he's making these arguments is the idea that because uh, we are all recipients of of the inheritance of innumerable generations through um, uh, both idea in terms of ideas and in terms of just material conditions and material uh, comforts that that all is due to everything to everybody there, there's no way to disentangle the the individual from the whole everyone is is a recipient of, of past uh, uh, production and everyone contributes to to current and future production so it only stands to reason that we all get, uh, at least the basics, and in this case, he's talking about housing. Any what, what thoughts come up for you, Amanda? I thought it was really interesting how they were talking about like the arts and the streets and having gaslit situations for the neighborhoods, and it kind of makes me think of like neighborhoods now. Like you can drive around town and you can definitely tell what's like a really well-to-do area with a yeah. lot of money and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Like you can see where the tax dollars go, and it's really unbalanced. Oh, for sure. I mean, you, you drive to any neighborhood that's, you know, not got the, the best of, of tax base, uh, and, and you mm -hmm. can tell that the, the potholes are everywhere. I mean, just like, you know, the, the street by our building, basically, is, is not all that well-maintained. It's always one of the last to get plowed in the winter, um, last to get its potholes filled, and uh, that's not coincidence. It's, it's from this current which even in Kropotkin's time was the current idea that you know certain people are just more deserving than others that you know there's just a natural hierarchy to things and because rich people have contributed so much to society you know on and on and on they deserve the best uh you know security and the best schools and the best this and that like even today you have things like uh education being tied to the the tax base so you have poor schools that are in poor areas mm -hmm. so all these things that are supposedly public goods do not shake out evenly they're not they're not given equally to the people they're they're given out based on uh this this bad reading of of this natural hierarchy and what he's saying is that's that's completely wrong there's there's people are all basically the same it just happens to be that some people through the lottery of birth have, have found themselves in a rich family or through some you know coincidental confluence of circumstances have had in a very banker. rare circumstances yeah well in, yeah in the most to... i mean it's definitely most common to just inherit your wealth but yeah in, right. in rare circumstances sure there's the the guy who has a really brilliant idea and then 
someone comes along and, and decides to finance it. But I mean, you know, even people like Elon Musk, you know, he, he didn't just have these great ideas that he, he just had to, to, you know, become one of the great men of history and put the, put all his ideas into practice. No, his, his family <laughs> were emerald miners from South Africa. Like he started out with it with a silver spoon in his mouth. And so, yeah, the, the idea that there's just these these great men of history in this natural hierarchy is is pretty bogus if you tug at any one thread of of the the narratives that people weave about these sorts of people and the same was true in Kropotkin's time and he's he's trying to kind of undo these myths pretty much shall we continue on here a house in certain parts of paris may be valued at thousands of pounds sterling not because thousands of pounds worth of labor have been expended on that particular house but because it is in paris because for centuries workmen artists thinkers and men of learning and letters have contributed oh, to make Paris. Sure, yeah. Now that makes me think about the city or the state of Minnesota, and like that's that's where we live in Minnesota. Um, like different cities here, you know. Yeah. A house in Edina is four times what the same house would be in like Lakeville or Farmington mm-hmm. for the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you're just like buying into that manufactured prestige. And, and, you know, the, the, the capitalists will come back and say, oh, it's because of supply and demand and you know, this is a more desirable place than that. And, and there's there's some truth to that. But, uh, oh, don't worry, seize the minis. I, I'm always happy to, to have people uh, interrupt and, you know, put in there. Uh, put That's in not their really an interruption. It's a conversation. Yeah, really. This, this is a conversation. It's not just between us two uh, or even us and the, the audiobook. It's between everybody. All right. So. Also, oh, so I'll, I'll get to your uh, your comments in just one second. Um, so yeah, so there there is some truth to to the idea of supply and demand making things worth more or or less, but at the same time, everyone deserves at least a basic level, right? Everyone is is basically uh, equal with with you know a, a narrow range of fluctuation in terms of talent in any given field and and everyone contributes to the world in some way or another even if they're not working they contribute to the world they're they're a friend they're a neighbor they they do something that that makes them worth uh keeping as part of the community and keeping around so um yeah the idea that that some people should have to to pay most of their income to live in in a place while others pay just a fraction it just it doesn't doesn't make sense if you, if you look at people as fundamentally equal. So we're going to get to some of the, the comments here. So Seize the Mini says, also his large ideas were largely taken from NASA and the exploits of his laborers. That is a, an excellent point as well. You, you look at a lot of these, these, especially these tech billionaires, a lot of their ideas did come out of things like the, the U.S. government and especially the army uh, um, putting together things like uh, you know, the, the Internet. Um, and, and different communications as, as a means of, of doing their work that they then basically gave at, at little to no cost to people that happen to be in the right place at the right time to make a private uh, investment on that. So, so you're right, yeah, yeah. They, even, even the things that he has done in his private company are in some... Oh, hi, Jared. Nice to meet you. Uh, 
so, so even the things that he has done as, as part of his private company all aren't aren't all just from the, the mind, the brilliant mind of Elon Musk. They are from the efforts of his workers. He's got a huge research and development team. You know, he may come up with these ideas like the power wall or the hyperloop or that really dumb idea of just putting uh, countless tunnels underneath LA so that you can put one car at a time on a shuttle to go from one side of the city to the other as though that's going to help anybody, especially <laughs> the price that, oh, we're friends on Facebook, Jared. Okay, cool. I'm glad you could make it. Thanks very much for, for, for coming out. Uh, so anyway, th this idea that he had to just put these, these, cars onto to basically sleds that would shuttle them from one side of LA to the other to avoid traffic jams. I mean, they're all going to come out in some place, so you're only going to have a certain number of terminuses. It's the same thing with a highway. You can have a 12-lane highway, but if people are going to one of only like six or seven exits, you're still going to get congestion. It, it, <laughs> and for the prices that he was talking about with his boring company, drilling just endlessly, just you know, level after level of tunnel underneath LA, an earthquake-prone area, it it boggles the mind to 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 wonder at how people can think he's such a genius when he seriously comes up with some of these ideas. But but I digress. Um, yeah, I, we we all owe a debt to past generations. We all owe a debt to each other, to the 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 labor of each other. You know, we owe we owe a debt to the people that collect the garbage. It would pile up really quick if we didn't have garbage service. We, we own a debt to um, uh, educators, you know, that, that we've never paid a dime to, yet we benefit from, just as, as, you know, any great entrepreneur owes a debt to people that they never end up paying. And that's, that's okay. It shouldn't be that we all have to pay, you know, back and back and back. It should be that we all share the wealth of ideas and knowledge and labor and everything. That's just my opinion. Can I add a little bit since you Absolutely. brought up education? So I'll admit, I'm honestly a tad biased because I work in education, but the way that education is handled here in the United States versus another country like, say, Finland or something, like, teachers are treated like babysitters and they are paid like babysitters. Like, the starting yeah. salary right now for an educator is like 35000 a year. It's criminal. That's insane. And then yet you want all of these years of education and then they usually do student teaching and it's like nothing but like in Finland they pay their teachers really well and they take education very seriously and mm -hmm. it's very much more equitable the, the same as oh, I'm sorry I mean to cut you off I was going to say the, the same is true of like social workers and people that work in, in nonprofits doing you know vital things like homeless outreach I mean mm -hmm. it seems like the more vital a service is for uh, people, the, the less well you end up getting paid. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, people that make, you know, uh, a new kind of, uh, I don't know, a cell phone case that, I don't know, that's a bad example, but something that no one really needs, but they can make a lot of money doing it. They, they just get all the rewards for it. It's, it's kind of, it seems backwards, intuitively at least, mm -hmm. in it's my like mind. Well, those things are all like social things, right? Like mm -hmm. social worker assistance type things, people that help run social programs and not for profits and education, like all the things that really require mm -hmm. perpetual education and fine tuning right. and 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they expect so much, like, especially for like mm-hmm. a teacher or a social worker. Mm-hmm. For social work, you have to go to an extra, I think it's like year or two years uh, of an undergraduate degree to get paid, you know, not much better than, than minimum wage in a lot of cases. Uh, it's, it's a strange system we live in. And the idea that capitalism somehow is the best way to organize all this stuff is really not borne out if you look at just the average outcome for people average person is never going to own really any private property in their entire life. Uh, and by private property, I again mean that, you know, the means of, of, of producing a living. So they'll never own their own business. They'll never own uh, things that they rent to people to do a business. They, they, they will never own uh, property that they make any money off of, except for maybe when they sell it, you know, selling, selling your own personal house. And even in that case, most people don't end up being homeowners. So, not exactly the even the American dream that has been uh, pushed on us more recently. It's it's just uh, an American dream for some, you know, uh, the dream of, of being a master for some. But uh, in order to even, I mean, the thing that people don't think about is to even have a number of people being, you know, the boss or the owner or whatever. You have to have a lot more people working underneath you. It, it, that's just how the structure works. The, to to be able to take money. From the people below you in order to make your large salary you have mm-hmm. to to have a number of people that you can skim a little bit off of you know the efforts that they add to the company so so yeah but again getting way off on a tangent but i, I do like the conversation a lot so we're going to keep on going this damn thing keeps disconnecting let's go now Sorry, technical difficulties. Bear with me here. It keeps losing signal for the thing. Is the internet still on? Internet's still on, so we're we're good in that regard. But... Okay, because I was gonna say it dropped for me a few times earlier. So. <sighs> yeah. The joys of working from home. Yeah. <laughs> and having only one option of internet. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, we could go with what? What's the? I don't know. I don't want to get into it, but yeah, internet sucks here. It sucks in America in general. And it should be free well for everyone. Because it is the fruit another, of 18 centuries of utility, toil. Basically. The work of 50 generations of the whole French nation. Who then can appropriate to himself the tiniest plot of ground or the meanest building without committing a flagrant injustice? Who then has the right to sell to any bidder the smallest portion of the common heritage? On that point, as we have said, the workers are agreed. The idea of free dwellings showed its existence very plainly during the siege of Paris, when the cry was for an abatement pure and simple of the terms demanded by the landlords. It appeared again during the Commune of 1871, when the Paris workmen expected the communal council to decide boldly on the abolition of rent. And when the new revolution comes, it will be the first question with which the poor will concern themselves. Whether in time of revolution or in time of peace, the worker must be housed somehow or other. He must have some sort of roof over his head. But, however tumble-down and squalid your dwelling may be, there is always a landlord who can evict you. True, during the revolution he cannot find bailiffs and police sergeants to throw your rags and chattels into the street, but who knows what the new government will do tomorrow? Who can say that it will not call in the aid of force again and set the police back upon you to hound you out of your hovels? 
just pause once once more. Oh, yeah, so this has been a big theme of this book, the, this worry that Kropotkin has that as soon as any revolution is concluded, ra- or, or as soon as the, the fighting of any revolution is concluded, rather than doing the actual work of fulfilling the promises of that revolution, like providing housing and food and and on and on and on for people's basic needs, that, that people will instead kind of fall back on old uh, systems of thinking and, and ways of doing things. So here he's talking about, you know, you may not have a, uh, oh, it's lagging on your end. The stream is lagging a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's just my old computer. It's, I'm, I'm showing it's, it's chugging along at about 22 frames per second, but yeah, there's, there's definitely been some drops and I've tried, you know, this and that to, um, kind of make things run a little better. Uh, but I, I think that just, just the idea, just the running the stream plus having the camera going and recording at the same time, it just is a little bit much for it to, to handle. So I apologize if, if the, uh, the video is a little bit laggy, I, I hope that the, the sound is still getting through at the, at the right rate. Um, so at least you can follow along with, with the audio part of it. Cause that's really the important part, but yeah, thanks for letting me know. That, that things are lagging a little bit. So anyway, uh, so he's saying that, you know, during the revolution, yeah, things are going to be up in the air and, and there may be a suspension of law enforcement, but it can be very easy once the, the fighting is done to, to just go back and, and say, okay, go ahead, police, enforce your laws, go ahead, landlords, take your fees and, and evict whoever you like and stuff like that. And, you know, you just, it just ends up being a, a case of, of here's the new boss, same as the old boss. We just fall back into old patterns. So once again, he's saying that you really need to focus on what the revolution is. And for him, it's not at all about the fighting. That's just the first step. What, for, for him, revolution is about fulfilling promises. If you promise people housing and food and that they won't be treated like refuse for the rest of their lives, that they will be, be given meaning and dignity in their lives, then you better focus on that first and foremost once the fighting is done and once new power structures are just naturally uh, uh, you know, building back up and occurring. You have any thoughts on that at all? Um, I kind of went into my other thought processes, like Maslow's hierarchy of yeah, needs. Like, for sure, people need shelter. People need food. People, yeah, like people function best when their baseline needs are met. Absolutely, they they, they are able to then defend your city should some outside force say, "Oh, it looks like they're." in a weakened state maybe we should come in and and take over um and and they'll be more likely to as well and not just be able to they'll be willing to because they have seen that things are different under this 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 new uh system that their voice matters that that they actually are going to be able to live without fear of of starving or being thrown out on the streets or, or any of these other things that could stop them from reaching their highest and, and best potential in their life and contributing the most they can to their fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's continue on here a little bit. Commune proclaimed the remission of rents due up to the 1st of April only. After that, rent had to be paid, though Paris was in a state of chaos and industry at a standstill. 
so that the revolutionist had absolutely nothing to depend upon but his allowance of fifteen pence a day. Now the worker must be made to see clearly that in refusing to pay rent to a landlord or owner, he is not simply profiting by the disorganization of authority. He must understand that the abolition of rent is a recognized principle, sanctioned, so to speak, by popular assent. That to be housed rent-free is a right proclaimed aloud by the people. Are we... And, and yeah, the, there's a reason that they are called landlords. It's uh, a vestige from feudal times. Uh, it was literally the lords of the land who just by, uh, you know, the king or whatever monarch uh, appointing them to that certain position, they got to collect taxes and, and take the, the, some of the, the product of the labor of, of their serfs and, and the other people that lived on their land. And it's no different now. Uh, there was a good analogy that uh, the YouTuber Sean had recently. And he was like, is, is being a homeowner a job? Like, uh, yeah, you, you might have to call a plumber once in a while, but that's not, that's not really a job. Like, no matter what, plumbers have to be called uh, to, to fix pipes or, to, or, you know, HVAC people to fix the heating or, or what have you. But it's not really a job. No one would say, I'm a homeowner and that's my job. Now, if you move out of your house and charge someone else to live there, you're still providing the same maintenance. You're still needing to call the plumber or the HVAC or whatever to maintain the property. So what actually are you doing? How is, how is being a landlord actually a job? And the answer is obviously it's not. It's not a job. We need to get out of this mindset completely that, that landlords contribute anything to society. All they do is create an artificial scarcity. They buy up something that everyone needs, which is housing, shelter, and then sit on it and charge people for the most part, whatever they feel like, whatever they think they can get away with, it doesn't have to do with maintenance. There's, there's nothing, there, there's no, I mean, there, there's definitely a minimum level to, to maintain the building that you would have to charge, but anything above that, just kind of whatever you feel like you can get away with. It's the, the market rate or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's, it's definitely not a job because there's no labor actually being performed that you wouldn't perform as an owner occupier. Oh, if you do think about it, the landlord <laughs> owns the property, you're paying the mortgage for him or yeah. her or them. Uh-huh. However, they still have employees because, of course, they're going to pay lesser people to come out or, you know, lesser uh, so, people so to come out and, like, job. take yeah. care of the problems, fix the plumbing. You know, they probably have, like, several maintenance persons hired. Yeah, or, or, or people, people to, to hire the maintenance clean and landscape. Yeah. yeah. Yep, but that's but again, that's no different than you would need if you were part of a cooperative housing association. You'd still need people to mow the lawns, and and clean the common areas, and and maintain the boiler or whatever heating system you have. It's it's mm-hmm. you can you can you know look at it any way you like, but the the landlord themselves doesn't actually contribute anything, and and you know. If you have a small-time landlord who maybe just has one or two properties, yeah, they might do a lot of those services that they would otherwise hire out. But but even still, it's it's not any more than you would have to do on your own. So as a, as an owner, so sorry, it's <laughs> not a job. <laughs> or my favorite thing is when they ask like the tenants to do things for like oh. a discount, like yeah, have... right now. 
Yeah, we got they, they put up a snitching program in our building where if you see <laughs> someone dump who who you don't know dumping stuff into the dumpster that you're supposed to call them and they'll give you a, what is it even like a gift card or, or some No, it's like $50 crap like that? off or oh, $200 fifty dollars off your rent. Yeah. $50 for reporting it, but $200 if you can provide evidence. Oh, it says, yeah, so they want you to go to film people dumping stuff in your dumpster. Because <laughs> like, that's not going to be a that's, problem that's, Yeah, all. that's not going to be putting yourself in any danger that, that you're, like, being a creeper on people that are probably just <laughs> throwing stuff away. It's like... At least they're using the receptacles. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. I was, though, I was thinking of another circumstance. I have a friend who lives in a different apartment complex and she gets a portion knocked off of her rent because she's the one that goes and shovels all the sidewalks around the building Mm -hmm. in the winter time again you're this person's paying you and you're you're exploiting the person that pays you to live there i just think it's it's really bizarre yeah you're just putting money back in their pocket really Right. Yeah. And labor then. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you, you know. <laughs> like what else can you give? Please. Not to mention liability. They don't have to hire extra employees to, to do, do that because you're not technically an employee. You're just a tenant who gets a discount. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're saving them a ton of money by doing that sort of thing and, you know, still paying their mortgage and plus some plus whatever they feel they can get away with. <laughs> so yeah, Sorry, quite, so quite the racket that, uh, that owning property is it's, it's about the least contributive profession you can possibly have in my opinion so there you have it let's let's keep moving this measure which is in harmony with every honest man's sense of justice is taken up by the few socialists scattered among the middle class elements of which the provisionary government will be composed we should have to wait long till the return of reaction in fact this is why refusing uniforms and badges those outward signs of authority and servitude and remaining people among the people, the earnest revolutionists will work side by side with the masses, that the abolition of rent, the expropriation of houses, may become an accomplished fact. They will prepare the ground and encourage ideas to grow in this direction. And when the fruit of their labors is ripe, the people will proceed to expropriate the houses without giving heed to the theories which will certainly be thrust in their way. Theories about paying compensation to landlords and finding first the necessary funds. On the day that the expropriation of houses takes place, on that day the exploited workers will have realized that the new times have come, that labor will no longer have to bear the yoke of the rich and powerful, that equality has been openly proclaimed, that this revolution is a real fact and not a theatrical make-believe like so many others preceding it. So yeah, uh, the idea that the best guard of your revolution is to uh, fulfill your promises, that, that once enough people see that, that you mean, yes, uh, giving people uh, the things that they need for their life, that they, will, they won't ever accept going back to any other system, that, that all the landlords who will be whining about all the money they've lost and all the property they've lost and stuff like that, too bad, they'll just have to get jobs um, and, uh, you know, the same thing with labor, you know, people never accept a tyrannical top-down system of, of a workplace anymore. Once they have a taste of something different, uh, I think it's, it's, I think that, I think there's a really powerful argument in that. I know the, the one time that I actually worked a union job when I went for the postal service, uh, I felt a big difference in, in, 
what I was doing. I felt like I had someone there who was, uh, you know, who had my back. You know, I didn't feel like it was just me against an employer in any dispute that I had. Like I, I saw on, on many occasions, especially during the, the holiday times when things were always really crunched, that they would follow up with complaints, like working people overtime. They would get big penalties, you know, and it wasn't little. It'd be like $100 a day penalty for, for working their, their delivery people more than the contract called for. Um, that, that was a great job. Uh, if, if it wasn't for the, the really terrible hours and never getting weekends, I'd absolutely still be there right now just because they, they, they really stuck up for you. So, you know, once you get that little little taste of, of a, a different system, a more just system, you, you kind of look back at everything that's come before. And then if for whatever reason you're forced into that system again, you, you really have something to contrast it with. And that's not just theoretical. It's, it's a possible reality. And you wonder why you ever put up with it before. So It's interesting, too, to see how many people, though, will fight jobs unionizing. Oh, yeah. Like... I mean, myself as a paraprofessional, we've, mm-hmm. our facility's been approached several times and they've shut it down immediately. They just don't want it to happen. But I feel like things always are better when it's a we, not me situation and everybody takes care of everybody else. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's really the mentality that there needs to be. Employers love to, to split people apart and kind of atomize them and, and say, don't talk about, you know, compensation. That's just, you know, not something that's done. And the the effect of that is no one ever says, hey, wait a minute, how come I'm making so much less when I have, you know, so much more experience? Or or how come we're all getting screwed so hard? Or, or, you know, on and on. It it would lead to questions that that might lead to uh, unionization, you know, and they'll they'll pit each other against each other. You know, who can do the most sales? who can, um, you know, deliver the most pizzas, you know, we'll give you a bonus. They, they always like to pit mm-hmm. each other against each other. Employee of the month. There's another system that, that just pits workers against each other for, for what, clout? You get your, your, your name on a, on a little plaque on the wall uh, and, you know, what, maybe a pizza party or something like that. I mean, come on. Like, they, they, they toss you these crumbs in order to, to make you feel individually special, but at the same time... Uh, more close to them than you are even to to fellow employees because they're they're terrified of you ever banding together with them because they know they know what power that that their collective workforce has uh they know what position they would be in if if they had to do things more fairly so yeah don't don't buy into that you know uh any, anything that, that, that splits you apart from your fellow worker, even if it's if it's across different jobs. Don't don't look down on other people, other workers, uh, because of whatever job they have. You know, have some some class solidarity because that's how we, we begin to build power uh, and rival power structures that can actually challenge the the current institutions and the current way of doing things. I think another big thing that plays into that is that. I think oftentimes people forget that different people have different skills. Mm-hmm. Like, not everyone is going to be able to be an accountant or want to be an accountant. Yeah. Well. But then there are people who probably love 
doing landscaping. There's probably people out there that would love to be a garbage man because yeah, they get to be sure. outside and drive a big truck and wave to all the little kids because they're so excited to see them, you know? Sure. Like, different people simply are di- good at different things and value different things. But but each of these things is something that is... is important. Really they're important. equally it, important. Vital. I mean, because you need all the parts. Right, and, and this pandemic has really expose the lie that there are unskilled workers and and less important jobs because all of a sudden these unskilled workers become essential workers and they can't stop going to work and and i'm I'm in that same camp i'm a delivery driver and and i've worked through the entire pandemic i continue to work through the pandemic what extra compensation have i gotten for being an essential worker other than the occasional you know treat or yeah the occasional treat or water bottle from a customer which is really nice like you know more than anything if you have people that deliver to your house just as an aside if you have people that deliver to you treat them nicely you know they're probably being worked hard they're probably worried about being exposed to to covid uh having to come in contact with the public you know and they're they're providing a service to you that that you claim that you you at least claim that you need so you know if you if you have even even people who have left out like you know boxes full of little chip bags or, or water bottles or whatever it is that that means so much that that means a whole lot more than you know thank you for your service or or other you know kind of platitudes that that don't mean much and it means even more than all that i've ever gotten from my workplace which is an occasional boxed lunch like <laughs> through this entire pandemic there was there was maybe a month where once a week, we would get a box lunch and it would have like a cold sandwich and, and you know, a drink with it. And it was like, oh, wow, I feel really, uh, <laughs> I feel really essential with this box lunch here. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, not allowing me to, to <laughs> stop working because of the threat. I think it's interesting, too, how many states have prioritized delivery drivers like yourself for mm-hmm. Amazon and the USPS mm-hmm. uh, for vaccinations. Yeah. Even though you cannot work for, they would be impossible for you to work from home. Yeah. You know, and... I, I, I still haven't gotten any of my vaccine, any of my vaccine shots. I would love to and still working you... on trying to find one, but, uh, but yeah, she, she being an educator has, has gotten hers ahead of mine. Not to say that she shouldn't, she definitely should be at the front of that line. But, but uh, yeah, a lot of essential workers are just put in the same pool when it comes to vaccine time as the general public. And in fact, behind many sectors of the general public. So interesting, interesting thing to, to think about there. You know, essential worker just, just tends to mean uh, disposable. I mean, to put it in kind of a, a grotesque way, but, you know, kind of an honest way. Like we, we're treated as something that is disposable we we can we are essential we have to keep doing what we do and yet we're not really given like i've not been given a mask i've not been given any protective equipment through this entire thing i've I've been given virtually nothing and yet i'm still essential so you know at, at some point that that essential label just kind of breaks down and it, it you know the truth me. the truth of it shows through that it's it's yeah more more or less disposable because we you know thankfully not in my particular field we haven't been hit very hard but places like meat packing plants and and others where you do have to work in close proximity to other workers they've been hit some of the hardest of, of anybody 
even in rural areas where you might have one large meatpacking plant or, or some such thing, they've really been hit hard. And, and they too have not had extra compensation by and large. So, yeah. Another little aside, but I, I think it's important in the, in the grand scheme of, of what we're talking about here and, and valuing people, not just as a profession, but, but as just another human being and someone that's worth dignity and, and safety and, and uh, a platform to stand on uh, where they don't have to constantly be struggling just to survive. Let's continue on. And it has not. (laughs) This system. I very much apologize. I think you can only be away from it like a a minute or two. And then it's like, no, I'm going to go night night. Yeah. You know, one of these days, and I'll go on another little aside while I'm setting it back up here. I'm learning a whole lot. And I I have learned a whole lot about um, the streaming thing. Um, In fact, uh, I'll, I'll even put in a plug for one of the guys that I follow most of all on Twitch. And that is I Dan Simpson. He does the I Dan Simpson uh, show, and it's also available on YouTube. It's a little harder to find on YouTube, but uh, I'll, I'll probably link to that when I put up the video. But uh, he's a very relatively new leftist, but uh, he has a history. He has a, a background in voiceover work, and and he's also learned a lot about just how to to do better stuff with with Twitch streaming. So I've learned all kinds of, of stuff from him, just just kind of hanging out in his. Uh, his Twitch channel. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that, you know, there's a much better way to do sound mixing than the way I'm doing it. I, I, (laughs) because I haven't had the time really to, to look into it. Um, I haven't gotten into things like having a virtual mixing board so I could send the audio both through the, the, the stereo to us so we can hear it, but then also to, uh, the, the Twitch stream at the same time or to someone who's calling over Skype to, to sync everything up. Well, what I'm doing instead is I have a separate uh, speaker that I just play into my microphone, and it it definitely has its drawbacks. It's I'm sure the sound quality you can probably tell is kind of lacking a little bit, but uh, I want to be able to do this so that we can sync everything up, and I just just haven't had the time. But I'm I'm learning, and I plan to to do these things as well as yeah, eventually down the road once I have the audio set up well uh, to to get into things like. Um, Touch Portal, that's another thing that, that Idan Simpson talks about a lot. Uh, and Touch Portal, you can, you can have it so your, your people in chat, if they say something like, um, I don't know, like, like that's what she said. If they type out that phrase, you can have it set so that the Michael Scott thing pops up. And it's like, that's what she says, you know, and a play a little thing. You can even have like visuals pop on the screen. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. That's that's down the road, but you know, just kind of a preview. If you stick with this stream, I will definitely get there someday. As well as, as as every week, I learn a little bit about sound engineering. I've tried this week turning down the microphone a little bit so that I can uh, have less background noise. So so I'm just I'm you know I'm continuously improving, continuously wanting to improve. So you know that's that's my promise to you that is, if you stick with us, uh, I'll just continue to get better. Uh, at this, make it a more interactive experience and and uh, something that just sounds and looks better than we're at now. And eventually I'll have even enough money where I can get a, a newer computer and I can, I can start running these things more smoothly and stuff like that. But another aside, let's see if we can uh, get this audio working right again. Opted by the people, it will be carried into effect in spite of all the, quote, insurmountable obstacles with which we are menaced. 
Of course, the good folk in new uniforms, seated in the official armchairs of the Hotel de Ville, will be sure to busy themselves in heaping up obstacles. They will talk of giving compensation to the landlords, of preparing statistics, and drawing up long reports. Yes, they would be capable of drawing up reports long enough to outlast the hopes of the people, who, after waiting and starving in enforced idleness and seeing nothing come of all these official researches, would lose heart and faith in the revolution and abandon the field to the reactionaries. The new bureaucracy would end by making expropriation hateful in the eyes of all. Here indeed is a rock which might shipwreck our hopes. But if the people turn a deaf ear to the specious arguments used to dazzle them, and realize that new life needs new conditions, and if they undertake the task themselves, then expropriation can be effected without any great difficulty. But how? How can it be done, you ask us? We shall try to reply to this question, but with a reservation. We have no intention of tracing out the plans of expropriation in their smallest details. We know beforehand that all that any man or group of men could suggest today would be far surpassed by the reality when it comes. Man will accomplish greater things and accomplish them better and by simpler methods than those dictated to him beforehand. Thus we are content to indicate the manner by which expropriation might be accomplished without the intervention of government. We do not propose to go out of our way to answer those who declare that the thing is impossible. We confine ourselves to replying that we are not the upholders of any particular method of organization. We are only concerned to demonstrate that expropriation could be effected by popular initiative and could not be effected by any other means whatever. So this is the argument against more of a centrally planned or centrally concentrated authority. The idea that for this, this new system to really gain steam and, and, and uh, become the new system, it, it can't be something that some centralized authority just imposes because they're always going to fall back on, on old ways of doing things. You mentioned in previous podcasts uh, or previous, excuse me, streams about uh, uh, kind of the managerial class taking over and, and just falling back on, on what they do. And, and there's very real uh, danger in that sort of thing, especially if you have a swift revolution before people have really had the time to educate themselves and think about these issues. It's, it's, it would be very easy for people to just say, okay, you seem like you know what you're doing. Uh, go, you know, go ahead, uh, help us reorganize things and for that person to then take advantage. So he's saying it has to be something that has buy-in and, and participation from all people. It can't just be some bureaucrat in, in you know, a hotel office kind of laying out their particular vision for the world and just having that be something that, that uh, takes place. That there's, there's too much danger in, in things just falling back as they used to be. Anything to add to, to that at all? Not to this portion. Sure, no problem. We'll continue on then. Very likely that, as soon as expropriation is fairly stated, groups of volunteers will spring up in every district, street, and block of houses, and undertake to inquire into the number of flats and houses which are empty, and of those which are overcrowded, the unwholesome slums and the houses which are too spacious for their occupants, and might well be used to house those who are stifled in swarming tenements. In a few days, these volunteers would have drawn up complete lists for the streets and district of all the flats, tenements, family mansions, and villa residences. 
all the rooms and suites of rooms, healthy and unhealthy, small and large, fetid dens and homes of luxury. Freely communicating with each other, these volunteers would soon have their statistics complete. False statistics can be manufactured in boardrooms and offices, but true and exact statistics must begin with the individual and mount up from the simple to the complex. Then, without waiting for anyone's leave, those citizens will probably go and find their comrades who are living in miserable garrets and hovels and will say to them simply, quote, It is a real revolution this time, comrades, and no mistake about it. Come to such a place this evening. All the neighborhood will be there. We are going to redistribute the dwelling houses. If you are tired of your slum garret, come and choose one of the flats of five rooms that are to be disposed of, and when you have once moved in, you shall stay, never fear. The people are up in arms, and he who would venture to evict you will have to answer to them. So here we see uh, a similar method, as, as Kropotkin has described in previous chapters, of kind of divvying up the, the resources of the nation, first by taking inventory. Uh, I think he's mainly talking about a particular city at this point, but it could happen all across a nation. So basically you send out people to take inventory of everything. So in this case, housing stock. And then you just spread the word around saying, hey, you, you sick of your living conditions? Uh, this is what we have available. Pick out something new for yourself. Uh, and, you know, again, this, this, is, this is investing in the revolutionaries. This is investing in the common person to, to help guard against uh, failure of, of the promises of the revolution. Uh, this is this is showing people that you really mean business. Like he says, this is a different revolution. This is a different kind of revolution. This is something that um, this is something that is uh, more meaningful and and actually capable of producing the kind of change that it, that revolutions always promise. So yeah, it's, so similar sort of method as as he usually talks about. But everyone will want a fine house or a spacious flat, we are told. No, you are mistaken. It is not the people's way to clamor for the moon. On the contrary, every time we have seen them set about repairing a wrong, we have been struck by the good sense and instinct for justice, which animates the masses. Have we ever known them to demand the impossible? Have we ever seen the people of Paris fighting amongst themselves while waiting for their rations of bread or firewood during the two sieges? The patience and resignation which prevailed among them was constantly held up to admiration by the foreign press correspondents, and yet these patient waiters knew full well that the last comers would have to pass the day without food or fire. We do not deny that there are plenty of egotistic instincts in isolated individuals in our societies. We are quite aware of it. But we contend that the very way to revive and nourish these instincts would be to confine such questions as the housing of the people to any board or committee, in fact, to the tender mercies of officialism in any shape or form. Then, indeed, all the evil passions Sorry, spring up. Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting point when mm -hmm. they were talking about how that that's not in people's nature to all go after the best. And I think that that's true. I agree. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, sure, you're going to have outliers, but you have outliers yeah. in literally every possible situation. Right. But there are far less of them than there are of the middle. 
And in, in fact, uh, uh, let's see, when I was in uh, high school, but also after high school, when I was in AmeriCorps, I did a year of, of AmeriCorps service. We did disaster relief for, for one of our projects. I was in the NCCC, which is the National Civilian Community Corps, and, and what, how they organize it. Instead of having just one project that you focus on, you do a whole bunch. You'll do like five weeks here and, you know, eight weeks there, and you kind of go around the country. So we actually, we actually ended up doing disaster relief in northern Minnesota. Um, and for part of that, I, I had to help people uh, make insurance claims, basically, or... or to that effect, basically, I don't know if it was the city or if it was just some program that, that had things like water heaters and, and whatnot that people could apply for. Um, and, you know, you would think that, oh, oh, the government's giving away free stuff. Everyone's just going to come, you know, take what they can. But but time after time after time, people would come to me and, and be like, well, I don't want to take it if other people need it. Oh, yeah, I know other people need it more than me. And like, I, you know, I, I, I think we can probably get by without this or the other thing. And, and I'd have to even convince them, be like, you know, don't worry about that. We have enough for everybody. We, you know, this is this is a, a process of, of just, you know, getting getting what you are, in, are basically entitled to through the, this program that they were they're putting out. But you see, so. In that extreme circumstance, when there's been a disaster, when people are really in need of things like hot water, you know, like uh, we would drive through these neighborhoods and people would be, you know, mucking out their basement. They'd have like inches or feet of, of mud that had just poured into their basement. So they're working all day long in stinking, contaminated conditions. They're, they, more than most anyone in the country at that time, needed a good hot shower and, and some, some, you know, human comforts. And yet they were the most humble and the most wanting to, to help their neighbor first. So why should we believe that in normal life, uh, or especially in a, in a situation where there's now the opportunity to do things differently, why should we believe that, that people are just going to grab, grab, grab whatever they can get their hands on? You know, once they see that, that hey, we're not doing this, this sort of thing to you know, screw anyone over. We're instead trying to invert the system so that everyone, for the most part, uh, gets all the things they need. Once they, once they see that, I think more than anything, generosity is going to pour forward. People would say, hey, you know, you guys, you got a big family. You take the five-room apartment over there. I, I can do fine with this efficiency here that I found. It's clean. It's stable. It's good enough for me. People don't really... Like we're sold this idea, but I think more than anything, this idea in capitalism that you always want the bigger car and the bigger house, that's just something that has sold to people. It's not something that if we stop to really think about it, people would think of for themselves. And, and, and like Amanda was saying, there's always going to be the outliers, but so what? So, so one guy wants to have, you know, the penthouse suite at the top of a, of a skyscraper. As long as everyone's housed, who cares, really? Mm -hmm. You know, let them have their, their extra luxuries and stuff like that. Most people are going to be fine, you know, being above the level of survival, but, but below the level of just, you know, obscene luxury. People are going to be okay with that. And people are going to want to help others that, that, you know, may be left out after everything. If, if maybe there's still a housing shortage or a food shortage or whatever, there's going to be plenty of people that, because they've experienced such generosity 
and and uh, such buy-in to this new system, uh, they're going to be willing to help other people build or procure whatever they need. Uh, and they'll have the ability to do so. They won't have to be worrying about working three jobs to, to scrape by for, for a you know, gross hovel in, in, in some basement unit of an, a, a decrepit apartment block. They'll actually have uh, sanitary conditions and, you know, uh, spaces that they can share community with others and be proud of, of where they are and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I think one of the biggest criticisms of Kropotkin is that he's very idealistic. He believes in the best of human nature, but I think that human nature trope is kind of wearing thin at this point. The idea that, that like the, the Randian school of thought, the Ayn Rand school of thought that people are only motivated by enlightened self-interest and no one should ever owe anyone anything. And everyone should just live this atomized life where they, you know, only rise as high as their ambition is willing to take them and all this stuff like that. I, I don't think these, these tropes really bear out uh, once you get down to it, that, that these tropes are only reinforced by ideas of capitalism and, and the, the myths that they sell that, you know, like I say, you pull on any one thread of it and it just unravels. So why should that be any different? I don't think it would be. I think, I think human nature is more than anything to help one another. That's, that's how we've gotten, that's how we've built anything. It's not been one person's vision. It's not been one person's effort just stacking brick on brick and you have a pyramid or you, you know, you have a skyscraper, one guy welding everything together. Like, come on. It's, it's always been the, the collaboration between many humans across generations and across trades and across everything that have, have built anything that's worth anything. Even, even knowledge and literature and the distribution of it. Never been the effort of just one person. Always takes many, many. So I think human nature, by default, more, more often than not, again, always those outlier, really selfish type people, uh, but I think more often than not, human nature is to do what they can to help others, especially if they've been put in a position where their needs are met and they're able to. Should we continue on? Well, I or did just, you have something to add? Yeah. Um, I was just thinking back to some of the things you had said earlier. And I think with the way that the system would turn out in an ideal situation, right? Like you're aware of your neighbors, who they are, what they need what they're good at, what they struggle with, mm -hmm. and it makes it easier to help each other out. Like, I'm sure a lot of you out there are familiar with the Nextdoor app, but I've really gotten to become a big fan of it because we're exchanging information all the time within the community. We know what one another needs, and people are sharing resources, and it's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Like, someone just started a seed library this week. That's cool. And, like, uh, the area we live in, there's been a lot of, like, catalytic converter thefts. And mm -hmm. somebody shared something from the police station. I know. Um, that you can come in and get your converter marked so that later on, if there's another theft attempt or, you know, theft of your parts, mm -hmm. that it won't be able to be sold and you could possibly get it tracked down and get it back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's huge and a really great thing yeah, to have those kind of things yeah people you tend to take care of people you know mm -hmm. and 
it's always like a reciprocal thing. Sure. And in our current age, it's 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 frankly hard to get to know people. Mm-hmm. Even if you live in an apartment complex, like we live in a multi-unit complex, and we know everyone basically on our floor, um, but other than that, we don't know anyone from any other building in the complex. Uh, we don't really know that many people from other floors, and part of that is it's just uh, it has to do, it comes down to urban planning and and good design. Um, there's no real common places other than the laundry room, which sucks. That that's a, you know it's two two washers and two dryers for uh, an entire I don't know, I don't know units? I think no it's even more than that like it's it's got to be closer 24. to like twenty four or yeah, so three floors and four on each yeah yeah, okay. yeah anyway it's 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 dozens of units and and you know there's always that one person who forgets to take their clothes out or whatever or the, the one washer breaks down anything that but the point being that that's our one common area other than that it's parking lots and, and a couple of patches of grass but there's you know there's not any real space to gather there there's no in-between space we don't have any balconies or anything like that even something like that can can really go far to uh just just creating that those connections like so that's so you good. can be at home you still have that that privacy and that security of being at your home, but you're also interfacing with the public at the same time. So yeah, like there should be a little park or like a little grilling area. Yeah. And just just the way that it's oriented, like it's it's oriented kind of inward towards the towards the parking lot rather than than you know really it, it you know being up against any street like. Uh, and, and you see this a lot, especially in, in like newer uh, like uh, apartment complexes, especially in, in like suburban areas where they'll completely separate and kind of almost segregate it off from the public. So you'll have uh, the park, the massive parking lot out front uh, in between the building and the road. So there's no chance that anyone can from the general public can wander by and, and see you uh, there. There's you know, internal hallways. So you're not going to really see people much as they're coming and going from their, their, their individual units. Um, and you, you may have a common room or two, but, but by and large, it's, it's kind of isolating, you know, there's, there's no space where you can just sit out and talk to neighbors. There's, there's no space in front of your specific unit where, where you can, do that sort of thing um so just just little differences in in the way we do uh like even say like building codes like requiring uh apartment complexes to come up to the sidewalk so that there is that chance of of you know human interaction with other people um not putting high density uh buildings way out in the middle of of just vast residential tracks where you're still dependent on a car. You know, that's another thing that can help build community is just having stuff nearby that you can walk to. Even if it's like just a grocery store, that can make a huge difference in the number of interactions you have with your local community. 
and through these these natural interactions you just you, you tend to to get to know one another you tend to think of them more than just that that faceless nameless neighbor who may or may not live a, a couple floors down or you know maybe down the hall you're not quite sure where you've seen them before but they become real people to you and that's that's the the first one of the first building blocks to to real community and real community is one of the first building blocks to any sort of uh, concrete political action, whether that's even just getting people to vote more, like even if you're just going the, the very basic electoral routes of getting a better mayor or a better city council person to represent you, or you know, getting people onto the park board that you, you care about. Um, all that starts with connections, and when things are, are built up in a way that uh, connections are not naturally occurring then it can it acts it, it doesn't make it impossible to to make those connections but it definitely acts against it so that's one of the reasons that i, I try to you know i try at least to to fold some of these new urbanist ideas or these these just urban basic urban plan urban planning ideas um into into what i talk about uh okay so all right seize the minis another another uh Comment here, agreed on the critiques on human nature. Hyper-individualism isn't natural. Absolutely not. You look at the, the arc of human history, um, even the idea of the nuclear family is really new and, and, on, and pretty much only came, out, came about during the uh, modern industrial age when they wanted to, to separate people apart so that they could you know, ship them off to a different uh, part of the country to, to go work at a factory or, 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 you know, start a factory town. And also so they can sell more stuff to you. So everyone can have a TV, everyone can have a car, everyone can have, be sold, you know, modern appliances and, and you know, stuff instead of sharing it. So yeah, hyper-individualism, not the natural thing. The extended family, the extended community, that's how people have lived. That's how people function as, as social creatures. Uh, more naturally. I, I totally agree with, with that assessment. Uh, yeah, depending on and assisting each other is. Kropotkin goes into this more, I think, with Mutual Aid, which definitely is a book I'm going to get to eventually, but uh, I want to I try to get different authors a chance before. And also, I tend to switch back and forth between um, anarchist literature and communist literature. I, I want to give you know, both sides, so to speak. Uh, more of an equal say. Um, so I think next we're going to do uh, the principles of communism. And then because that one's so short, I may do a longer one like state and revolution or something like that before we get back to the anarchist stuff. Um, but eventually we'll get to that. I mean, the idea is that eventually I'll, I'll get to the point where um, I have a, a nice body of stuff built up and we can start going back to some of these authors for sure, for sure. So yeah, but definitely Mutual Aid. That's actually one that I haven't read at all, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in doing it um, just for my own sake because Mutual Aid, I think, is one of the most powerful concepts that anarchists have ever come up with. Just the idea of operating how you do in your family. You don't you don't necessarily charge, you know, or you definitely you shouldn't be charging your kids rent to, to stay in your place, you, you know? And if they're adults... Yeah, Children, you probably are at, at the most can be charging in a reduced rate. Um, but just, you know, 
things are given based on need. Things are, are, are shared among one another, and, and that's just the idea of mutual aid. Is you just you have a surplus, you find a need, you, 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 you plug your surplus into that need, basically. And then you may get something in return, you may get something in return from another place, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Things just kind of sort themselves out based on people producing things and sharing with one another, basically. And how we should, uh, so continuing on, you say Kropotkin goes into this more in mutual aid and going into how we should be operating naturally as a social species. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, definitely yeah. excited to, to get into that at some point. Yeah, I think that's really true too because I was, and I apologize because I cannot remember where I read it, but they were talking about like being in a neighborhood, being in an apartment, and like it's really important that you try to make connections with at least six people in your neighborhood because it makes you feel happier and they've been safer in the space that you're in. Yeah. I really wish I could remember where I read that. No, I it think makes that's, me sad. That's definitely true. It, it, it turns mm -hmm. it from the place that you, you happen to, to live for now right. into a place you know, in, into a, something that's separate from every other place that you have lived and that you could live. It, it turns it into um, a, well, a community, I guess, is, is the best term for it. Well, I mean, look at the transition. So our last apartment, mm -hmm. we lived in a safer neighborhood, but we knew... Was, I mean, you look at the way the riots went. They went right by our old door, but, but continue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So we lived in a safer neighborhood, according to my car insurance. Oh, sure. Um, however, we knew no one except for the girl who lived next door to us because we sometimes would see her. So we knew one person in the entire building. Yeah. Now we're in this newer building and we know we all of the people, people on our floor, which makes this space feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, not to yeah. mention this part is way more awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, aside from that Technically, part, but... per crime maps and our insurance, it's in a worse neighborhood. I just, I don't see how that could be, like... Just, this is what the insurance I know. Is. I... I mean, it, yeah, it kind of shows some of the, the bullshit logic of, of insurance companies and... That's a whole other ...assessors. Realm. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely so. And, and you know, like, uh, it snowed a few weeks ago, and, and neighbor from across the hall help me clean snow off my car. It's just a little thing, but like it makes all the difference. It's like I feel like this is more of a, a place. It's it's more it's like the difference between a house and a home, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, a home is some place where your family is, where you have experience and memories and, you know, all this the, these these feelings and, and connections built up. A house is just a place that you, maybe you own and and you know, you go you to, sleep there and eat there. You sleep there, you know, you, when you when you come home from being off the road, you go back home to your house and you know, crash for a while, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely. That that's a very good point you bring up is making connections is, is super important in, in the grand scheme of all these things. And, and that's why I try to focus all of my, my, uh, my politics and my, my philosophy down to connection, you know, that this, this idea, which I haven't really talked about much since, since I first brought it out on the, the first stream, but the, this idea that I call the, the theory of Solaris, just the, the idea of interconnectedness, um, being at the root of, of all these theories that, that animate my life, whether it's new urbanism, whether it's um, anarcho-communism, whether it, it's uh, permaculture, uh, any of the really important like uh, theories that I think can, can reshape the world, 
they all come down to interconnection and making for an inter more interconnected uh, world where we all uh, care about each other and and also depend on on one another more and and work with each other more to to solve problems. So it's kind of the opposite of what we have now and the the atomized ever ever more uh, pushing apart world uh, that, that we we tend to live in. You know, you look at a lot of the the problems today. A lot of them are caused by lack of connection. Whether that's even just something as simple as lack of empathy for another group of people, lack of even trying to put yourself in their position. Uh, whether it could be like immigrants, you know, you know, just seeing them as the other, and and building up xenophobic ideas, which turn into potentially actions and potentially legislation or, or, or sweeping policies that can hurt them because of a lack of feeling connected to these people that are coming in. I think we need to, to turn that on its head and and embrace the diversity that, that's coming in, the, the new ideas, the new ways of thinking, or just the different ways of thinking. Um, I think that's that's our best bet to to make solutions is to, to have as many people looking at it from as many different angles as possible, whatever the, the problem that we're trying to tackle is. So I try to, to, to center all of my uh, thoughts on ideas of connection. What builds connection? What breaks connection? What builds healthy connection? What could, what could potentially build not good connections or unhealthy connections? That sort of thing. So I, I, I just tend to call it Solaris, which means of the sun. And uh, the sun for me is, is a good symbol because the sun is what basically, I mean, literally connects us all through... The, the food that we eat, uh, all coming from photosynthetic life forms at, at the base uh, to uh, the energy that we use, pretty much all coming from the sun, aside from like geothermal and nuclear. The wind is, is made, uh, is animated by the sun. The, the solar power, of course, is from the sun. Uh, all of our fossil fuels are, are, in essence, stored sunlight from some creature that that died long ago usually things like algae or, or you know simple uh simple celled organisms um so yeah that's why i use solaris of the sun to, to try and kind of, try and kind of pull all these theories together and kind of ground it in something that's that's more tangible but let's continue on with the chapter we're about halfway done and we have disconnected again Boy, this is really bothering me. I need to find a new solution for this one. Because I cannot take this. All right. Try that again. Ward. The least inequality causes wranglings and recriminations. If the smallest advantage is given to any one, a tremendous hue and cry is raised, and not without reason. But if the people themselves, organized by streets, districts, and parishes, undertake to move the inhabitants of the slums into the half-empty dwellings of the middle classes, the trifling inconveniences, the little inequalities, will be easily tided over. Rarely has appeal been made to the good instincts of the masses, only as a last resort to save the sinking ship in times of revolution, but never has such an appeal been made in vain. The heroism, the self-devotion of the toiler has never failed to respond to it, and thus it will be in the coming revolution. But when all is said and done, some inequalities, some inevitable injustices will remain. There are individuals in our societies whom no great crisis can lift out of the deep ruts of egoism in which they are sunk. 
The question, however, is not whether there will be injustices or no, but rather how to limit the number of them. Now all history, all the experience of the human race, and all social psychology unite in showing that the best and fairest way is to trust the decision to those whom it concerns most nearly. I think that's an interesting point there. Trust the decision to those who, who know the need most nearly. I think that's a, a good way to operate. You know, you want to talk about how to provide housing for the, the people that need it the most, which I, I, you know, would be the homeless and the, and the people that are uh, housing insecure for one reason or another. Uh, probably go to them and, and, you know, talk to them about what their needs are, what, what would make them feel secure, what would make them feel dignified, what would make them feel safe. I guess that's a, just a component of security, but still, uh, you know, where they would like to live, you know, what, what would put them near something that they need, whether that's uh, proximity to, to other people they care about or to a particular job that they want to go for that they have or whatever it is, you know, I think it should really start. I think that's a good point. It should really start by uh, asking people what they need rather than just assuming uh, and, and crafting a policy, I mean, that's how we get things like uh, housing projects, which on paper, well, yeah, you're housing a whole lot of people that need it all at once, but in practice end up doing things like isolating people and uh, providing uh, areas for, for uh, crime and insecurity. Uh, Jane Jacobs talked about having eyes on the street and, uh, and how these large housing projects were designed to be basically towers in the park. Uh, but that left a lot of, of dark space that no one was looking at and, and potentially made for very dangerous areas. And she looked around to the neighborhoods where there were things, she called it like uh, uh, street permeability. I don't know if that was her term, but, but that's definitely an urban planning term. The idea that there's a lot of ins and outs, like e even if it's something like uh, shops that you can go in and out of, or if it's, uh, you know, people with balconies that, that look down onto the street or, or porches or just some space where people can sit and just kind of keep an eye on things and and look out for one another as neighbors and, and friends and and so if we if, if, if the people that made uh, these sort of these sort of uh, public housing structures instead talk to the people about what they actually needed first then maybe we wouldn't be stuck with with all of these, very large megastructures that that can't just be you know disposed of you, you know you can't you've put a lot of money as a city uh, into them uh, they, there's a lot of people that are now living there and, and don't have a great alternative so you can't just tear it down and rebuild so but you kind of backed yourself into a corner because you didn't think about all of the needs of the people that you're serving in the first place so I think this is very good that, that Kropotkin brings up this point that really we're looking at a needs-based economy, which is essentially what he's talking about. Things are distributed based on need first and foremost. You have to actually figure out what that need is or you're going to be sending a lot of things to a lot of places that they shouldn't be going to and potentially causing a lot of strife and, and you know, at worst, things like uh, starvation uh, and and more insecurity and, and fights and violence and stuff like that if, if things aren't going where they need to go and people's needs are still not being served because you assumed one thing when it was really another, you know, that, that, 
that's what we call in permaculture a type one error where you you go off half cocked thinking you know the solution before you really test and understand the conditions on the ground because the conditions on the ground will beat you every time if you don't respect them because they're not going to change the only thing that can change is your design do you have anything you wanted to, to add to this part? Not oh, this part. That's fine. That's fine. No problem. We'll continue on. Can consider and allow for the 101 details which must necessarily be overlooked in any merely official redistribution. Moreover, it is by no means necessary to make straight away an absolutely equal redistribution of the dwellings. There will no doubt be some inconveniences at first, but matters will soon be righted in a society which has adopted expropriation. When the masons and carpenters and all who are concerned in house building know that their daily bread is secured to them, they will ask nothing better than to work at their old trades a few hours a day. They will adapt the fine houses, which absorb the time of a whole staff of servants, and in a few months homes will have sprung up, infinitely healthier and more conveniently arranged than those of today. And to those who are not yet comfortably housed, the anarchist commune will be able to say, Patience, comrades, palaces fairer and finer than any the capitalists built for themselves will spring from the ground of our enfranchised city. They will belong to those who have most need of them. The anarchist commune does not build with an eye to revenues. These monuments erected to its citizens, products of the collective spirit, will serve as models to all humanity. They will be yours. And there's another interesting point when this, this idea of, or this lie, basically, of the great men of history starts breaking down, you realize that the, the ability uh, and, the, and the, the skill to build these things, all these houses, very few of them are actually built by the, the people that end up with the most money and the most profit from them. You, you get the, the collective knowledge to run all the factories, all of the, the businesses, everything is within the workers that actually do the work, much more so than these owners. We don't really need the owners. You know, they just happen to have, have won their position through luck or, or, or lottery of birth or whatever have you. So, you know, people say, oh, how are you going to rebuild all these great things if, if the owners stop working? It's, it was, you know, the entire premise of that god-awful book uh, Atlas shrugged that, oh, what if all the owners, all the great men of history just decided to take their toys and go home and, and let the, the poor idiots of the factory uh, sort themselves out? Absolutely not turn out that way. <laughs> they, they would just be someone else. The foreman, the former foreman would, would become, you know, would, would keep on doing their work. Everyone could just keep on doing their work and they, they would still produce the same amount of stuff. And, and... You know, I mean, the, the, the trade relationship would definitely be different, but the, the, the modes and methods of production would be more or less the same. Um, but they could also be better as well, because you're now thinking about the needs of, of everyone, not just the few. So you're not necessarily going to keep a, a factory running that's right next to where a whole lot of people live. And that's, you know, you know, poisoning them with mercury or, or other heavy metals or whatever, you know, or you're going to move those people away to, to another spot where they're not going to be uh, affected by the pollution. Or you're going to just do things in a better way that, that you know, can provide the, the same sort of basics of life. Um, uh, but at the, at the same time, oops, sorry, I'm going to kick you there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, 
doing it in a way that's gentle to the earth. So, so yeah, I, I, I like that uh, Kropotkin brings that part up, that we can just, we can do these things. We don't need the owners, basically. <laughs> Sounded like you had something you wanted to, to add to that. I think I lost it. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> if you pick it back up. I also want yeah. to say, oh, getting some more comments in here. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Seize the, the Minis. Um, I'd be curious to know how you, how you came up with that name. That's clever. I like it. But you say, uh, it's interesting how the wealthier people, how the, the wealthier people are, the less they tend to care about each other, even though they're able to afford it so much more than the lower class people operating with mutual aid on a, on a near daily basis. That's absolutely true. That, that's, that's fundamentally true. And I think, I think there's a lot going on there that, that contributes to that. For one thing, the more wealthier you get, it seems to me, this has just been my experience in, in seeing, uh, you know, friends and, and um, colleagues get better off, is uh, you kind of insulate yourself from the daily struggles of people that have less. It's harder for you to imagine what life is like. It's harder for you to empathize and to relate to the people that are still struggling to, to make ends meet, you know. Uh, I have a friend who I asked him once, you know, hey, can you just buy whatever food you like and, and not really worry about the price? And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Why, why wouldn't I be able to? Like, it, it, it hardly even occurred to him that that was even a question. Um, and for me, that's something I got to think about all the time. You know, we can't just, you know, buy whatever food we, we care about uh, or, or we care to eat today. We have to budget things. We, we have to be much more careful about the way we use our resources. So there's that, and then there's there's also the idea that you can just insulate yourself. Like, it, it just becomes easier to not have to care about things that you don't personally struggle with. And people in general have, have trouble uh, imagining struggles that they don't tend to have, especially conservative people. It, it, it seems to be, they just... You know, if things are good for them, they just kind of assume that's the way it is for everybody. And then at the same time, I think there's this, this other component of it, uh, th this capitalist myth of, of natural hierarchies and stuff. It's like, well, I make more, so I must deserve more. And, you know, I've, I've just worked really hard. And, and uh, you know, so everyone can do what I do. And if they don't do what I do, then they're just lazy or they're they just, deserve their they're, place. Yeah, they're just, they're, things sort themselves out. We live in a meritocracy, right? Like all these, these ideas that things just sort themselves out naturally as they're supposed to go. And, and of course we know that that's not true. The people that work the hardest physically and mentally and whatever are always the people at the bottom. You know, people, people make fun of, of fry cooks and, and burger flippers and stuff like that. But I'd like to see them get through a shift. Uh, they wouldn't know, last an hour. Yeah, really. Uh, most of those people who make these sorts of claims would not last an hour. Um, so. And I think, too, that also makes me think about, like, politics and stuff. Like, look at people like Nancy Pelosi, who's sure. a Democrat. Yeah, exactly. And she's so out of touch. Like, she doesn't push for things, and she doesn't really have any idea of what people want or need. Or need, yeah. She's completely alienated. Like she's totally out of touch. She's just been in her ivory tower this whole time. For sure. And it's unfortunate. And like, P.S. Total side note. I think there should be term limits on 
every single position yeah. in politics. I think that's something that most people can that, agree with. Yeah. Like, keep that in check, right? Like, there shouldn't be anyone that's no. been in the same political position for, no. like, 50 years. Unless they've, like, you know, yeah. genuinely won that every time. Well, part of part of democracy and spreading power, which is ultimately what all these leftist systems are, are trying to move towards, is the spreading out of power. Part of that means that no one stays in their their position of power. And, it, and if we are to grant any sort of concentrated power to anybody, they, they have to at least be limited, you know, in time to, to not always be able to hold on to that. We don't want dynasties. We don't want kings. We don't want people just inheriting power or wealth or what have you. It doesn't work. It, 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 it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the people that inherit it. They, they become entitled. They, they believe that you know, well, this is just the, it's, it's, it's not that far removed from the divine right of kings, really. The idea that God has ordained you to be mm-hmm. in, in such a space and, and therefore you deserve it. And, you know, how do you know that you deserve it? Well, because God said so. And how, how do you know that God said that? Well, because this guy who, you know, I give all the money <laughs> that they ever could use has, has read the book and he's told me that, that that's what God said. So that, that has to be. It just becomes... This big circular logic that eventually breaks down, which is how we got to capitalism. The the divine right of kings broke down finally. And again, the, the myth that capitalism perpetuates of, of natural hierarchies and the great men of history and all these things that we've been going over, those will eventually break down too. It, it has to be because people will, will see that the best and brightest don't rise to the top, the, that people are unfairly treated for a myriad of reasons that have nothing to do with any decision that they could have ever made in their life. Um, That it's more to do with where you start out. And and that's been borne out in statistics. Where you end up is is most determinant by where you start out at. So, yeah, these things will have to break down eventually. Eventually we'll get to the point where uh, the material conditions will need, will require people to start thinking differently than they do now. And, you know, I think maybe we've come to that point. It seems really that you, you had the, the rise of unions and, and uh, organized labor and uh, the welfare state and these, these, all these social programs that came about, you know, with the New Deal, which itself, another good thing to look into the history of that, was basically a compromise with actual leftists. To, to appease the, the middle class and the, and the middle, you know, is, is the grand compromise, basically. So rather than doing anything that would be really like socialism, uh, they instead institute a lot of social programs. And that appeased people because they, they worked in general. They worked better than what they, they were, uh, than the, the programs or the lack of programs of the older era. Um, so then you had that going up until about the Reagan-Thatcher area uh, era of the 80s, when neoliberalism finally made a resurgence, and these these sort of myths that people get what they deserve, and that things sort themselves out, and that we live definitely in a meritocracy, all these sorts of things began to break, or began to uh, make a resurgence as the dominant way of thinking. And that went on until, well, hey, the material conditions changed with the, the housing bubble bursting of 08 and all the stuff that, that came after that, 
was a result of the material conditions not being able to any longer support that that neoliberal myth. And we still see the presence of it very pervasive in our lives today. You still, uh, especially on the Republican side, my, my goodness, the, the, the talking points you could have pulled out from from Reagan's, you know, playbook, you know, verbatim. And even many of the, the Democrats as well, like Joe Biden, as as much as he has, has made concessions to uh, left of neoliberal, he, he still kind of is uh, at his core uh, a believer in that philosophy. But even that has has broken down. And I think that 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 change in material conditions was the beginning of the end for neoliberalism. And we're just watching the fallout from that. Uh, even up until the 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 uh, Trump election, the, the the sixteen election, there had the Democrats done the right thing and and not held back Bernie Sanders, I think we would have had, then we would have had the clear choice of of what is colloquially referred to as right wing populism. I think that's really a misnomer. Um, versus actual populist ideas that, that Bernie had. And of course, again, not, not quite leftist yet, but still back towards the left from that neoliberal uh, point that had been so dominant. Anyway, uh, so, so I think there would have been a very different outcome had it been Bernie versus Trump, because the material conditions especially for my generation, like I, you know, I consider myself an elder millennial. I'm kind of on the, the, the upper end of, of us millennials. But my generation has been the first to experience, on average, uh, lower, lower expectations for uh, earning potential than previous generations. We're the, we're the first generation since, I don't really even know, I guess since World War II. Um, that has had lower expectations for our average earnings. And so the, the, the minute the material conditions don't bear out the common myths, they, those myths start to break down and they start to be seen for what they are. And I think that's what we're, we're in the, the middle of right now. And it's only going to continue to happen as, as now the, the, the Zoomer generation, Generation Z, basically my kids, their generation, comes up and experience the same you know, uh, so it's, it's, I mean, in a way, it's an exciting time to be alive because there's, there's no difference in sight. I mean, it's, it's possible that there may be another grand bargain that, that resets that, that clock leftward for, for another few generations. They may come out with some really huge social programs like Medicare for all or, or something like that, and then they kind of just kick the can down the road rather than actually solving once and and for all, um, or at least you know for the foreseeable future, the the underlying conditions that cause these problems. But we may break the other way this time too. We may even go further left. We may break through that left wall of capitalism that I, I'm constantly talking about, and actually start to put in institutions that are durable. And, and, and robust that uh, challenge the myths of capitalism and start to perform in ways that capitalism cannot in terms of taking care of everybody and building community bonds in a way that capitalism never can and that doesn't really have any interest in doing. I mean, they like it better when we're separate, again, so that they can sell us all one of everything, basically. 
and for a number of reasons. It, it you know it keeps us apart from organizing. It it keeps us uh, busy. You know, even just commuting to and from work keeps us busy doing that rather than thinking about things like organizing uh, labor movements or anything like that. So yeah, um, I, I guess <laughs> have a habit of going off on tangents on this these these uh, streams, but. I think it's important to to take these ideas from these old books and kind of see where it leads us and, and how it can apply to today. So, you know, that's, I think that's just kind of part of it, you know. Do you have anything you wanted to add or do you want to continue on? Okay. Continue. Yeah. You should be playing right now. Why are you not playing? There we go. If the people of the revolution expropriate the houses and proclaim free lodgings, the communalizing of houses and the right of each family to a decent dwelling, then the revolution will have assumed a communistic character from the first, and started on a course from which it will be by no means easy to turn it. It will have struck a fatal blow at individual property. For the expropriation of dwellings contains in germ the whole social revolution. On the manner of its accomplishments depends the character of all that follows. Either we shall start on a good road, leading straight to anarchist communism, or we shall remain sticking in the mud of despotic individualism. It is easy to see the numerous objections, theoretic on the one hand, practical on the other, with which we are sure to be met. As it will be a question of maintaining iniquity at any price, our opponents will of course protest, quote, in the name of justice. Is it not a crying shame, they will exclaim, that the people of Paris should take possession of all these fine houses, while the peasants in the country have only tumble-down huts to live in. But do not let us make a mistake. These enthusiasts for justice forget, by lapse of memory to which they are subject, the crying shame which they themselves are tacitly defending. They forget that in this same city the worker, with his wife and children, suffocates in a noisome garret, while from his window he sees the rich man's palace. They forget that whole generations perish in crowded slums, starving for air and sunlight, and that to redress this injustice ought to be the first task of the revolution. Do not let these disingenuous protests hold us back. We know that any inequality which may exist between town and country in the early days of the revolution will be transitory and of a nature to right itself from day to day. For the village will not fail to improve its dwellings as soon as the peasant has ceased to be the beast of burden of the farmer, the merchant, the money-lender, and the state. In order to avoid an accidental and transitory inequality, shall we stay our hand from righting an ancient wrong? The so-called practical objections are not very formidable either. We are bidden to consider the hard case of some poor fellow who by dint of privation has contrived to buy a house just large enough to hold his family and we are going to deprive him of his hard-earned happiness, to turn him into the street. Certainly not. If his house is only just large enough for his family, by all means let him stay there. Let him work in his little garden, too. Our boys will not hinder him, nay, they will lend him a helping hand if need be. But suppose he lets lodgings... Okay, just one small point before we continue. Um, this reminds me of a question that... that or, or, 
a charge, I guess, that, that more often right-wingers have against the left, that they want everyone to have the exact same outcome in life and, like, everything to be exactly the same and just kind of gray and blah. Like, they, they imagine these 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 blocks of Soviet concrete buildings and stuff like that as, as the fate of everyone, and they just think it's very boring. Ironically, look at any modern subdivision and how beige and bland and uniform it is. But aside from that... Uh, Talking about right here, someone has a house that's nicer than most, but, you know, not completely extravagant, and they want to stay in that house and and use it, not a big deal, you know? As, as long as everyone has housing, it's okay for some people to have a little bit nicer housing than others. Uh, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is that everyone is provided for in the, in the, the basics of their life. So... No, we don't want to have everyone to have the exact same outcome, no matter what. We want to have everyone to have the exact same starting point, the exact same basis through which they can never fall uh, out of society and and you know, potentially to death or or even worse, just a, a very horrible, tortured life. We we don't want people to fall through the cracks, basically. So we want everyone to to have the same platform, the same starting point, but there's going to be. There's going to be some variation in where people end up, especially in terms of like jobs. You're not going to have someone walking off the street and becoming a surgeon. You know, we're still going to have specialization and expertise and potentially even a little more compensation for for people that we really uh, revere. Like maybe maybe teachers will have nicer dwellings than others because of the work they do for society or, you know, whatever. That that's that's not really the problem the problem is people not having enough right now scraping by and and struggling just to keep from starving just to keep the the meager means of substance uh, sustenance on their table stuff like that so start from an equal place not necessarily end up in an equal place but we also at the same time i, I should say we don't want people extravagantly or, 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 or to an extreme hoarding to the point where they're hurting society. But as long as you're within that window there where you're not just basically scraping by uh, by, the, by the skin of your teeth and you're not hoarding to the point where you can harm other people, you're probably going to be good and no one's really going to have a problem with that. So hopefully that explains things. Hopefully that's something that you can talk to people about when they bring up that, that kind of tired old argument about it empty rooms in his house. Then the people will make the lodger understand that he need not pay his former landlord any more rent. Stay where you are, but rent free. No more duns and collectors. Socialism has abolished all that. Or again, suppose that the landlord has a score of rooms all to himself, and some poor woman lives nearby with five children in one room. In that case, the people would see whether, with some alterations, these empty rooms could not be converted into a suitable home for the poor woman and her five children. That seems reasonable. Would to me. not that be more just and fair than to leave the mother and her five little ones languishing in a garret, while Sir Gorgeous Midas sat at his ease in an empty mansion? Besides, good Sir Gorgeous would probably hasten to do it of his own accord. His wife will be delighted to be freed from half her big, unwieldy house when there is no longer a staff of servants to keep it in order. So you are going to turn everything upside down, say the defenders of law and order. There will be no end to the evictions and removals. Would it not be better to start fresh by turning everybody out of doors and redistributing the houses by lot? Thus our critics, 
But we are firmly persuaded that if no government interferes in the matter, if all the changes are entrusted to those free groups which have sprung up to undertake the work, the evictions and removals will be less numerous than those which take place in one year under the present system, owing to the rapacity of landlords. How much has changed since then? In the first place, there are in all large towns almost enough empty houses and flats to lodge all the inhabitants of the slums. As to the palaces and suites... And today it's something more like 50 houses per every homeless person. Just some insane number. Like, I, look, I look, actually looked that up recently. 50 houses for every homeless person. That's not even talking about the people that are, you know... Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty for everybody. That's, that's, that's the main point. And too, you got to think there's probably people living in spaces that should be in bigger spaces. Absolutely, yeah. So, like, you know, families that have split, um, yeah. split-sexed kids. Like, boys and girls are not technically supposed to be sleeping in the same room, but I'm when sure there are plenty of families and, yeah. where they're all yeah, sleeping they in to, the yeah. same room because that's all they can afford. So, anyway. But, but sure, yeah. But, yeah, and, like, Kerbogan was saying, there's no need to just turn everybody out on the street and, like, you know, do a lottery of houses and stuff like that. It that, that That's way inefficient. There's no need for it. It's just going to cause too much upheaval and, and problems. Trying to reorganize absolutely everybody. What we're talking about is, is, is finding the people that, that need housing the most and connecting them up with, with housing that's available. You know, simple, easy, something that can be done within communities themselves or between communities, you know, if you're talking about a large city. So... Yeah, that sort of thing instead. Many working people would not live in them if they could. One could not keep up such houses without a large staff of servants. Their occupants would soon find themselves forced to seek less luxurious dwellings. The fine ladies would find that palaces were not well adapted to self-help in the kitchen. Gradually, people would shake down. There would be no need to conduct divas to a garret at the bayonet's point, or install Lazarus and Dive's palace by the help of an armed escort. People would shake down amicably into the available dwellings with the least possible friction and disturbance. Have we not the example of the village communes redistributing fields and disturbing the owners of the allotments so little that one can only praise the intelligence and good sense of the methods they employ? Fewer fields change hands under the management of the Russian commune than where personal property holds sway, and is forever carrying its quarrels into courts of law. And are we to believe that the inhabitants of a great European city would be less intelligent and less capable of organization than Russian or Hindu peasants? Moreover, we must not blink the fact that every revolution means a certain disturbance to everyday life, and those who expect this tremendous lift out of the old grooves to be accomplished without so much as jarring the dishes on their dinner tables will find themselves mistaken. It is true that governments can change without disturbing worthy citizens at dinner, but the crimes of society toward those who have nourished and supported it are not to be redressed by any such political slight of parties. Undoubtedly there will be a disturbance, but it must not be of pure destruction. It must be minimized. And again, it is impossible to lay too much stress on this maxim. It will be by addressing ourselves to the interested parties, and not to boards and committees, that we shall best succeed in reducing the sum of inconveniences for everybody. The people commit blunder on blunder when they have to choose by ballot some hair-brained candidate who solicits the honor of representing them, and takes upon himself to know all, to do all, 
and to organize all. But when they take upon themselves to organize what they know, what touches them directly, they do it better than all the talking shops put together. Is not the Paris Commune even instance in point, and the great dockers strike, and have we not constant evidence of this fact in every village commune? This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube. There we go. So that's it for this chapter on housing. Um, very critical one. Housing is one of those really basic building blocks of life that uh, there's so much exploitation in, in in terms of landlord and land speculators and what have you. But uh, the, the solutions to it seem relatively straightforward. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to agree with Kabrakin's analysis that it, it wouldn't be that difficult just to... Uh, redistribute a little bit of it um, to the people that really need a better situation uh, and just kind of let everything kind of happen as it does uh, and that people would be uh, again more more bought into the revolution feel more agency in their own lives and agency in the, the their political lives uh, if they're given these sorts of things when they need it and and able to help others find it for themselves or build it for themselves. Um, so yeah, what, do you have any final thoughts in this chapter before we go to credits and stuff? Or um, I'm kind of on the same page with you. I think that housing is such a critical issue and just one of those things right now that's so incredibly messed up and backwards yeah. and could be fixed so simply. Yeah. I mean, how, how often have you heard that we have, you know, a housing shortage or, you know, there's not enough housing stock, but, but that's, that's an absolute untruth. There's just a lot of people that own things that are unoccupied that could be occupied for, mm -hmm. you know, and then they just continue to do it based on usually land speculation or just, uh, waiting for the price to be right. So, um. It's it's a yeah one of the one of the efficiencies of capitalism right where you can have tons of, of empty houses and and still claim to have a housing shortage or housing stock crisis or what have you yeah efficient <laughs> so all right well thank you very much for joining me tonight for this I know this is getting to be past your bedtime but thanks. <laughs> But I really appreciate you, you sticking with me, and uh, uh, I appreciate your, your input on this chapter very much. We'll definitely have to do this more often. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me on. It was Absolutely. fun. And uh, so but before we go, I'm going to give a little plug to her channel. So go check out Perennial Green on Twitch TV. So that's Twitch TV or twitch.tv slash perennial, P-E-R-E-N-N-I-A-L underscore green and you will find her channel and she she tends to to do her streams on thursday nights so just the night before i tend to do mine thursdays at 7 45 7 45 there you have it so go check <laughs> her out there 